Amen. What a blessing to be able to sing these wonderful hymns, hymns of confession, hymns of confidence, hymns of comfort. That last stanza, the hymn writer wrote there, I am so glad I learned to trust him. Have you? Could you this morning say that? Is that your testimony? The myriad of things out there in which we put our trust. Only to find them lacking. There's no lack. There's no shortage. There's no no disappointment when our trust is placed in Jesus. A text was written by a lady named Louisa Stead in the days after her husband died trying to save a drowning boy in Long Island Sound. She was left with a four-year-old little girl named Lily. It was in the day shortly after that that she wrote that song. So we sang that this morning and we sang that last stanza, I'm so glad I learned to trust him. When you realize the circumstances that birthed that song, what a truth. We've all had difficulties. We've all had trials. When asked about the song, when asked about the text, her testimony was that out of her why struggle, it's understandable. Why? Why my husband? Why with this four-year-old little girl? Why when he was trying to do something heroic and save this other one? She said out of her why struggle, she came to know the peace that God is sufficient and that it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. That circumstance did not embitter her. In fact, a few years later, She packed up her belongings and her daughter with her and they went to the continent of Africa to serve as missionaries. While there she met another single man missionary. They remarried, she remarried. And ultimately they together served the Lord for 20 plus years in Rhodesia which is now modern day Zimbabwe. Her daughter Lily married while there and continued to serve as a missionary for many, many years in Rhodesia, even after her mother's death in 1917. I have to thank her testimony, her confidence in trusting in Jesus, how that impacted the life of that little girl. Mom could have gotten bitter and angry, resentful. What would that impact been on that little heart? But mom learned to trust. So too ultimately did the daughter. Two generations served the Lord in Africa sharing the gospel. What a blessing to sing these truths. I want to invite you to take your Bible. Turn to Romans 10. We're making headway. We're going to look this morning in Romans chapter 10 and we'll... 
I'll read for you in just a moment uh, this next section, verses 2 to 13. Of course, next week, uh, Brother Aaron Coffey will be preaching, and then the next week, um, I've been given a wonderful uh, opportunity to, to serve on the board of the Wilds Corporation, Wilds in North Carolina, as well as the Wilds of New England. Um, and so our board meeting is uh, in a couple of weeks' time, and so I'll be gone that weekend, but Pastor Josh will be preaching, and so... Uh, Lord willing, uh, we'll get through chapter 11 before the end of this year, actually before Christmas. Um, we had a staff meeting this past week and kind of just looking at the rest of the year. And, and it's a little mind-boggling, a little terrifying, the fact that, I mean, we were like, okay, and then it's New Year's. <laughs> I mean, it's just coming that quick. You know, for, for pastors, we kind of live our life Sunday to Sunday. And when you start counting by Sundays, there just aren't a whole lot left. <laughs> in this calendar year. But uh, Lord willing, we'll get through the end of chapter 11. We will start the new year um, in Romans chapter 12. That's the plan anyway. Um, so we'll, we'll see. But I, I, think, uh, I think that uh, will, is what will happen. So uh, looking forward to it. And I trust this morning, even as we've walked together through these passages, we have, uh, you know, I know it takes a while. And I could give you a survey of the book, and, and there's a benefit to that. But I trust that, and, and this is one of those things as a pastor, you really, you do learn to trust in Jesus, you learn to trust in the Holy Spirit, because I know it feels like it was forever that we started in Romans 1 and worked our way through now up to chapter 10. But I trust that, that you have learned and you have seen the theme and it's coming alive and you know, all the way through from just really declaring, as we'll see this morning, that reminder that all have sinned. And, and, and just exactly how terribly all of us have sinned, right on up through the wonderful glories of the gospel and Jesus uh, as, as Savior, um, up through the confidence of chapter 8. And now in chapters 9, 10, and 11, it, it is though Paul is, is standing before the church, and of course within the church universal, within the church global, there is this, this group as there are in any church. But in the early church especially, there was this little group of new converts who were also Israelites. Paul too was an Israelite. There was a special fondness there. There was a special understanding of life and of belief and religion there. And chapters 9, 10, and 11 are, are though, it's, it's almost like he, he just kind of comes alongside that little group and says, we're all in this together. We, we all kind of grew up together. I want to just talk to you for a second. Then he's going to turn his attention back in chapter 12 to everyone as a whole with that big therefore, based on all of this doctrine, all of this truth, what should we do with it? And that's chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, especially the application of all of that to our daily lives. This morning I want us to look here in chapter 10, Paul, in the midst of this conversation, as it were, with his fellow uh, Israelites, his, his fellow Jews, you know, he says to, to kind of the bigger audience, brothers, to talking about using that familial term with Christians, my heart's desire and prayer is that they will be saved, the, the Israelites. And then he says in verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. 
for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will ascend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, One believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who will call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can can you sense what Paul is saying here? Can, Can you see and feel the message he is delivering to fellow Jews, to the Israelites who have for generations upon generations been so steeped in keeping the law? That was their religion. And what he is trying to get them to see here in this passage and preserve for us this morning is that salvation is not in keeping the law. Rather, it is by faith alone in Christ alone. By faith alone in Christ alone. As Paul continues to write, and really to pour out his heart regarding his intense burden. For those of the house of Israel, he shines the light of truth on their dark predicament. He had been in their place for most of his life, right? Until the light, quite literally for him, revealed to him the gospel message. On that journey, on that road to Damascus. In the MacArthur Study Bible, the header for this section of verses is Israel needs the gospel. Yeah, that pretty well sums it up. In the ESV Bible, and and many of you probably have that if you've got the ESV journal uh, of Romans there, it says the message of salvation to all. That's not contradictory at all. Uh, that, that really is what is being said here because, again, with, with the Israelite people, with the Jewish people and their religion, they were very focused. They were very exclusive. Yes, there had been a way for Gentiles to come in and stuff, but they weren't real keen on it. 
Truth be told, they kind of brought that struggle into the New Testament church with them, and and that's part of what is being dealt with in, in several of the Pauline epistles, not just here, but previously in Galatians and later on in in the pastoral epistles as well. So both of these headings are appropriate. They capture the essence of what is before us here in this passage. And and again, this is one of those passages where where we kind of, you know, do the crane thing and we reach in and we grab, you know, verse verse 9 and we reach in and we grab verse 13. But look at it in its context. The reality was that for most of the Jews then and now, they are still trusting in their religion. And they were missing the amazing invitation that God had extended through Jesus of a real relationship with him. The veil had been hung in the temple for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But when Jesus uttered those blessed words, it is finished. The veil was torn from top to bottom because there was now a new and better way. I have to say one of the most tragic thoughts when you read through that passage, because it was what a glorious passage it is. As we read of the crucifixion and he utters the words and the gospel writers record and the veil is flipped from top to bottom. Obviously we know, tragically, they put it back. Have you ever thought about that? They're so steeped in their religion, they put it back. But there was a new and better way and that's what the writer of Hebrews proclaims that's what Paul here is proclaiming it's very interesting what you find when you look at the etymology of the word religion the Latin root of the word literally means to bind to restrain to put into bondage religion Wasn't that exactly what Paul is confronting as he preaches to them the gospel of grace through Jesus? They were in bondage to their religion just as many continue to be in bondage even today. The misplaced emphasis on religion always leads away from an intimate relationship with God and into an inappropriate reliance upon self. When you talk to a religious person about a relationship with the Lord, they will very often keep talking about all that they do. All they do. But, 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 but I... All the stuff their religion says they need to do. And God here is saying, do you not understand? I want to have a relationship with you. God had been evidencing this for now, by the time this is written, for a couple thousand years. And they missed it. They continue to miss it. Notice, if you will, that Paul points out that he knows, and and even to a, a, I guess in, in some little way, there's an appreciation, but he knows they have a zeal. 
but it's woefully lacking in knowledge. I don't know of a lot of people who could have gotten away with saying it just as bluntly as he did, right? Because they, there, was an, uh, there was an affinity there. There was an understanding. Literally, they have a passion. They have an enthusiasm. They have even a fanaticism about what they do in the name of religion. Sadly, though, they are blind to the truth. And again, Paul speaks from the perspective of of personal experience. He knew a thing or two, right, about the Jewish religious zeal, did he not? In the letter to the churches in Galatia, he had written, in Galatians chapter 1, he says, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul in his testimony is like, I was there, I get it. To the believers at Philippi, Galatians was written probably four or five years before Romans. The letter to the church at Philippi, probably three, four years or so after the book of Romans. So this has been an ongoing thing. (laughs) To the believers at Philippi, he would write in Philippians chapter 3, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here comes the, uh, the, the resume, as it were. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of uh Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Think about what he's saying. He understood. He sympathized, but more than that, he wanted them to be freed from the burden of of religion just as he had been. He realized, looking back, all of that was bondage. The zeal they were evidencing didn't have its roots in a true knowledge of God's desire for them. Because what did God want the Israelites to know? That he wanted to be with them. To have a relationship. That's why he told them to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, right? And then ultimately a temple. It says, so he came down and his glory filled the place because he wanted to be with them. When the children of Israel are wandering, he tells them how to set up camp. The tabernacle is in the middle and they're encircling it. Why? So they would, he could be in the middle and so they could look and see him. He wanted to be with them. He wanted, didn't want them to be in bondage to this religion. They were sincere in their religion, but they were sincerely wrong. Can I, can I just say here, it's, it's, again, it's real easy and it, this is the context of the passage, but... It's really easy to kind of, you know, throw rocks their direction. But this challenge, this, this emphasis on religion and stuff and, and what to do and what not to do, it's carried right on through the years. 
We still have to protect our hearts about this. One of the great tragedies of the reliance upon religion was that they had been robbed of truly knowing God's character. They were, as he says there in verse 3, and again, he, he uses some pretty pointed language. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They were uninformed. They were unaware. They were destitute of knowledge. Now that's really saying something. Okay, so again, he's, he's very pointed here. They have zeal, but not according to knowledge. Literally, again, the word there he uses, is, is, and he says it again in verse 3, for being ignorant. None of us would appreciate it if somebody came to us and said, you know, you're really ignorant. Wow. But again... Paul is speaking here under inspiration. The Holy Spirit is saying, this is not only what I want you to say, but this is how I want you to say it. They needed to be shaken. They needed to be confronted. Again, to tell the Jewish culture, to tell the Jewish people that they were uninformed, they were unaware, they were destitute of knowledge, was really saying something because it has long been known and accepted. Talking now even secular history here, understanding that as a people group, the Jews are some of the most intellectual and educated in this matter, and yet in this matter, they are ignorant. In his book, The Vanishing Word, it's a book that years ago somebody recommended to me and I, I read it, I keep, it's one I keep going back to, it was really, really profound. But in his book, Vanishing Word, Arthur Hunt writes this, talking about this subject and, and just the Jews' knowledge and, and just how it permeated their society. And so combined with the fact that they have, you know, just, as we would say, the three R's, right? Reading, writing, arithmetic. Uh, but, I mean, it permeated all the way through their religion. It was just in who they were. Carol Atkinson and Eugene Maleska suggest that of all the ancient peoples in the Western world, the Jews were the most literate. They were the only people in antiquity to attempt to teach everyone to read. He records how a Jewish father would take his son to the school at about the age of five or six to begin his education in the law. I want to read this paragraph to you because it is just really striking. Um, and what he's, he's quoting here, um, a Jewish historian from Studies in Judaism. You will know this name probably most of you, a man named Solomon Schechter. There's a school named after him about two blocks that way. <laughs> The school was the equivalent, the school within the society, the education system in the society, was the equivalent of Mount Sinai, says, says Schechter in his studies of, in Judaism. And the first day of school was undertaken with a special ceremony. The boy was wakened before dawn, bathed and dressed in a gown with fringes. The father escorted the boy to the school where he, put, uh, uh, he was put at a re reading desk and the passage from the law of Moses was spread out before him and read aloud. And God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 2 and 3. The child was shown a slate of the Hebrew alphabet in various combinations. More scripture was read, which the new student repeated before the teacher. Honey, 
would be put on the slate and the child ate it off. Then the child was given sweet cakes to eat with passages from the law written on them. This ritual calls to mind the prophet Ezekiel's words after God commanded him to eat the roll. Remember Ezekiel 3? And it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Barclay says, It can easily be seen that this was a ceremony which would remain printed on the boy's mind forever. Such then was the place which the school held in the Jewish ideal. That's the context. That's the society in which the people lived. It's not just modern. I mean, that goes back through the millennia. It's a fascinating thing when you read some of the, you know, Josephus and some of the, the first century historians and authors. I mean, the, the, the Jewish school system in the first century was a marvel. And yet, he says to them, you are ignorant. You're ignorant. The Talmud says the threefold duty of the father is to instruct his son in the law, to bring him to wedlock, and to teach him a craft. This they did with great zeal. It has to be said. It had been done and had begun with the purest of motives, but sinful human hearts had perverted what God had directed and implemented. Remember the admonition that God had given them in Deuteronomy 6? When he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be put on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That passage in Deuteronomy 6 is what they call the Shema. You can see around West Hartford, we uh, had lunch a couple uh, weeks ago with, with a lady here in, in church. And in her apartment, on the door, the previous residents were Jewish. And the mezuzah is still on the doorframe going into her apartment. That's what this is talking about. They took it quite literally, the zeal. And you can see around West Hartford these homes and apartments with a mezuzah on the doorframe. And sometimes even as they were supposed to do, even on every doorframe in the home going into any living room or bedroom. Inside of it should be a tiny scroll with two passages. One, the Deuteronomy 6 passage. Another one, a passage from Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through 21. Again, they were zealous. They were zealous. I mean, that is going to put all your crocheted pillows to shame. Paul had an amazing education, right? We know that well. Acts 22, he talks about it. He'd been a student of Gamaliel. Probably one of the leaders, certainly one of the leaders, maybe even probably the leader of the Sanhedrin. That was Paul's teacher. 
John MacArthur writes of Paul, by his own words, Paul had been a zealous member of the most zealous Jewish sect. No one understood better than he what it was to have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. The Jews had a certain degree or kind of knowledge, an intellectual awareness of the outward demands of God's law, but they did not have the discerning spiritual knowledge that comes only from a saving relationship to God. They had the kind of superficial religious knowledge that causes pride and arrogance, but not the godly knowledge that both comes from and produces humility and holiness. Again, Paul is, the Holy Spirit's directing him to just hit this head on. And don't be misunderstood, this is not beat up on the, the Israelites' day at all. This is preserved for us. This is written, Romans is a letter to the New Testament church. Be warned. This isn't distinctly a Jewish problem. You know, we here in the Western world, we have some wonderful, wonderful benefits. And, you know, decades ago, the... the Christian school movement and Christian higher education movement came alive and, and still goes on today and stuff. And, and I am very thankful that I am, you know, I came up through that. We, we have churches literally almost on every block. I mean, you know, we always joke about down south where we came from about church on every corner. But I mean, hello, there's a church on this corner and there's a church over there on that corner. I mean, there's steeples everywhere through New England. This was, oh, by the way, the birthplace of two great awakenings. There's knowledge. There may even be zeal. But could we not find ourselves just like the Jews here in this passage? One thing leads to another as night follows day, and ultimately they rebelled against God's plan. Just like he had said back in chapter 9, to them it had become a stumbling block instead of a stepping stone. Religious zeal combined with willful ignorance of God's true plan led them into rebellion. You know, the prophet Jeremiah in writing and calling to the people hundreds of years before Paul. Jeremiah 9, he said, let, the not, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So let us be warned, lest we too become pious from our own brand of righteous works. Our own brand of religious zeal. Paul's point to them and to us in verse 4. See what he says? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now when he drops that on them, that word, again, in our Christian vernacular, I mean, we just use Jesus and Christ sometimes interchangeably, sometimes together. But when it hit the Jewish year, he is confirming Jesus is the Messiah. 
For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness if you believe. If you believe. Let us continue quickly as Paul, having stated his case, delivers the solution to the problem. Because this does create a problem, right? All this zeal, but in ignorance. You got a problem. Well, the solution to the problem, as we see in the paragraph headings, is the message of salvation to all. The Israelites need to be saved. And they, like many today, are hung up on that tension between legalism and faith. So Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy 30. Again, Paul just keeps going back to what they knew in in the law, the Old Testament, the prophets. Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14, to remind the Jews that God had given them the law and had confirmed it in their hearts. That's what he is saying there in verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, now he's quoting, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. You know, and he, and he goes through that. He, he's going back to what they were clinging to. He's helping them see, but this is the reason why he said that. So through hyperbole, Paul makes the point that the word of God is very near to them and not outside their grasp or ability, ability to understand it. The Deuteronomy passage is used to show us that the word of God is readily available to the sinner and that Christ is near and ready to save. You don't have to have some degree of higher learning. You don't have to have some amazing intellect. Literally, he says, God's word was on their lips and in their hearts. That's what he says in verse 8. Just walking right down through what he's saying to them. Warren Wiersbe makes the point about verses 5 through 8. He says, Paul applied this to Christ, the word. That's why he uses those terms. Jesus, a known historical figure to them, right? But then he says, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. And he pointed out that Israel need not bring Christ down from heaven or up from the underworld because the word of salvation is near to them so that they can believe and be saved. And then Paul explains that salvation is by faith, not by works. It's a concept that Jews had tremendous difficulty accepting. People still today do. A continued reliance on works results in their being judged by the law. One commentator noted that even the commandments in the Old Testament books in the law, the Pentateuch, which again, Paul as a Pharisee, Pharisee of the Pharisees, he would have memorized that. That just blows my mind. First five books, he, would, he had it, known it, knew it cold. They're not primarily a call to external obedience. They are above all a call to heartfelt, adoring faith in a God of mercy and loving kindness who desires obedience but graciously forgives sin. And Paul drives home the point in verses 9 through 13, doesn't he? Salvation is an open invitation. They had said, nope, it is all about keeping the law, and if you don't, you're out. Paul says, no, salvation is open to all who believe. You've made it this. God wants it to be this. 
the invitation is conditioned. And he makes that clear. It's conditioned, but let us be careful not to make it more difficult than God intended it to be. That's what legalism and religion does. All three of the what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the synoptic gospels record that salvation is simple enough for a child to understand it. Jesus said, Unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's just that simple. You know, as we grow older, life seems to get more and more complicated, right? Salvation remains simple. Our experiences, our life challenges, our hurts... Our knowledge, our education, they can make us very cynical. But salvation remains simple. It's a confession of faith in the person and work of Jesus. Notice what he says here in verses 9 and 10. The chronology between belief and confession is shown here in verses 9 and 10. And in the language, it tells us it is simultaneous. We read it because you can only read a word at a time, even if you can read them real fast. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, we read through that and we're like, oh, okay, step one, step two. But what is really being said here is it's, it's simultaneous. It's really going to happen. The word confess in the Greek is homo legeo. You know that prefix. It's related with numbers of things. It literally means to say the same thing. What he is saying is we must agree verbally with God about sin, about our sin. Not just that sin exists, but about our sin. And this then leads us to the fact that we must also agree with God about salvation. I agree there's a problem, but I got to agree, agree with God what, the, what is the solution. I don't think you would, he would have had any trouble finding Jews that said, I believe that there is sin in the world. The problem was they didn't agree with God about the solution. He says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Right? Again, we would find that today. It's not difficult to get people to agree that there is sin in the world. And even that they have probably sinned a time or two. But what to do about it? How to resolve it? Now we got a debate. Maybe even a fight. That's what Paul's handling with the word believe. He uses it three times in verses 9, 10, and 11. And he uses a word that they understand means to have faith in, to entrust with, to commit to trust. 
confess. I say the same thing God says about this situation. I believe totally, 100% in my heart about his solution. The invitation is extended. And when the recipient accepts it upon the conditions established, there's confidence. Now, let's turn the page back a few months, right? When we were back in Romans 3. We would do well to remember that just as there is no distinction in condemnation, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is also none made in the offer of salvation. Because Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The all who have sinned and are condemned are included in the everyone who can call in belief and be saved. Do you get that this morning? The all who have sinned and are condemned are included in the everyone who confess and believe and be saved. That's the message of the gospel. You'll run into somebody and they say, you don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. I've got a story. Everybody's got a story. Yeah. For all have sinned, everyone who confesses and believes will be saved. It can't be that clear cut, we say. Well, again, as we finish up here, remember with me some of those who Scripture records that did exactly this. Who confessed, who believed. Nicodemus, educated religious leader, comes to Jesus by night in John 3 and has this conversation and Jesus explains to him this same truth. He doesn't accept it. Not at that point. But later on in John 19, I think he's there. It's pretty obvious he's accepted it. The Samaritan adulteress, John 4, I mean, we've, you know, we've cleaned it up and we call her the woman at the well. She, she was an adulteress. John 4, confess, believe, salvation. Lydia, successful businesswoman. The jailer at Philippi, common govern, government worker. All of them were condemned guilty as sinners and every one of them were saved as they confessed and believed the gospel of Jesus. We must not make salvation more complicated than God intended. It's not a theological conundrum. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. So two questions as we close. That's, that's Bible. That's just what he said. I'm not putting my spin on it. That is just right out of the text. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. You'll be saved. The all can be the everyone. 
Do you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, and that he rose again the third day? Do you believe that? Are you? Question two. Are you not ashamed to share with confidence that this is the truth of the gospel of Jesus? Think about what Paul is saying, to whom he is saying, at the environment, everything else. Don't sit here with me this morning and think, well, it was easy for him. They end up killing him over it. They stoned him. Are we not ashamed? Have you put your faith and belief in this? Salvation is not through the practice of religion, no matter how zealous. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And I pray that you believe this, that you've accepted this open invitation extended by God himself. Because this is the message of truth that gives us hope. Hope in life and in death. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that not only did you send Jesus to die on Calvary's cross, but you also gave to us such a clear understanding, explanation, proclamation of that good news. What it means to us today. What it can mean to those here in our community, in our workplace, our neighbors, our family members, our friends, our co-workers. Oh, Father, I pray today that if there is one here who just as these Jewish readers in the first century were getting it from Paul, they've been trusting in their religious works. Father, I pray today that they will confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord that he died to pay the penalty for their sin. That's the only way for righteousness to be put to their account. That is only the only way the exchange can be made of his robes of righteousness for our dirty rags of sinfulness. And Father, help us. Help us as we leave this place. Help us as we go into our communities to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. We pray these things in Jesus' name.